The family history of Abraham and of David that spans the Old Testament is not without its share of sin and shame and scandal, as we saw last week. In fact, Matthew seems to emphasize these things rather than hide them. Four women were mentioned in the genealogy leading up to Jesus, and depending on how you look at it, none of them had what we could call scandal-free pregnancies. It's almost as if Matthew was setting the stage for another apparently scandalous pregnancy. 2,000 years ago, in a small village in northern Israel, a craftsman who had established himself in his community through his trade decided he wanted a wife. Having chosen, having chosen a young woman, probably in her mid-teenage years or so, that he wanted to marry, he spoke to her father. The father agreed. The couple was formally and legally engaged, otherwise known as betrothed. At the end of their betrothal, the man came for his bride to her father's house. A wedding ceremony took place, and the husband took his bride home to live with him as his wife. They had several children. They grew old together, and so on and so forth. And all this followed centuries-old customs in Israel, guided and governed by the Torah, or the law, given by God to Moses. In that same village, perhaps in attendance at that wedding, there was another craftsman who was betrothed to a young woman, and he too was busy preparing a place to bring his betrothed to as their home. This craftsman's name was Joseph. He was a wood and stone worker, and his fiancee, or betrothed, was named Mary. Joseph was a humble, law-abiding Israelite. He built what he said he would build, he charged what he said he would charge, and he paid bills that he said he would pay. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to God's law. He's not perfect, uh, but he was righteous or just. And again, that doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. It means he was faithful to follow God's law. He wanted to follow God's law. He wanted to follow God's design for marriage, which included waiting until he was married to consummate his relationship with his betrothed. Uh, had he done otherwise, had he not waited to do that, it would have been akin to committing adultery, an offense punishable by death according to the law. Joseph, righteous, faithful to God's law, would not have done this. So imagine, having honored God in this way, imagine Joseph's surprise and dismay and brokenheartedness when he learned that his young wife-to-be, already promised to him, was pregnant. And Joseph knew that he was not the father. As the Mosaic Law outlines it, there are two potential scenarios of what could have taken place. One, uh, what we'll call the impregnating event. Try to keep this, I was told last week was a little bit PG-13. Uh, I didn't write it, Matthew wrote it. Um, Try to keep that sub that this week. It'll be a little bit difficult. You might have some questions about some terms today. You can send them to me. I'm okay with it. My kids might have questions about some of the terms we talk about today. Anyway, uh, two scenarios in the law of what could have happened. Joseph not being the father. One, the impregnating event happened outside the city in a field, and the young woman was assumed to have been taken advantage of. If this had been the case, the man guilty of violating her was to be stoned. The other option is that the event happened inside the city and the young woman was assumed then to have been a willing participant. In that case, both the man and the woman were to be executed for adultery. 
In either case, the bride was no longer spotless or pure and the marriage would be dissolved. In fact, we can see the significance of a betrothal period different than what we would experience in our culture. The significance of this betrothal period we see in that the engagement could not just be broken off by mutual decision. I mean, how many, I, I've watched so many chick flicks and, and you know, so many times you've got the girl marrying the wrong guy or the guy marrying the wrong girl and maybe it happens at the altar. I don't love you and I don't love you. I love that guy. What? You're engaged? All right. Dejected one spouse happily ever after for the other. And that's, that's just it. And that's fine. It's not fine, right? Don't do that, okay? But it's not something that could just be broken off by mutual decision. This commitment was strong enough that the marriage not taking place actually required a divorce. A, a formal, legal dissolving of what was going on. And Joseph, being righteous and law-abiding, would not have been willing to implicate himself in this sinful immorality by taking Mary as his wife. You get what I'm saying here? Like, you're engaged, you're betrothed, she's pregnant. First scenario is, it was you. And so for him to take her as his bride would be like, Yep, that's what happened. So Joseph, righteous, law-abiding, is like, no, 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 I, I gotta keep distance from that. I have not dishonored God in this way. So he distanced himself from the immorality, but he's also naturally unwilling to take an unfaithful woman into his house. Yet he was apparently kind and merciful even in his law-abiding righteousness and did not want to increase Mary's shame by making their separation more of a public event than it already would have been. Instead, he decided to do what maybe we could say is the minimum required. He would write a bill of divorce in the presence of two witnesses, present it to Mary, thereby ending their relationship, and then he would probably move away to start a new life somewhere else and take a wife there. Having wrestled with this choice, perhaps consulted with some other wise counselors, ultimately deciding that this indeed was the right course of action. Divorce her, do it privately. That's the only way we can move forward in a way that honors the Lord. So having decided that this was the right course of action, Joseph, righteous, merciful, and brokenhearted, went to sleep. And when he woke up the next morning, Joseph took an entirely different course of action. Rather than divorcing Mary, he took her as his wife and brought her into his house. Shocking. I wonder what made him change his mind. I wonder what happened. It's a big change. And thankfully, Matthew is going to tell us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You can turn there and follow along if you've not already working through Matthew chapter 1 and 2 for our uh, Advent coming of Christ sermons this, this Christmas season. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The angelic announcement given to Joseph can be boiled down, I think, to two truths about the baby that would be born to Mary. And these two truths are what I want to focus on this morning. Jesus's miraculous conception, Jesus's redemptive mission. If you think that's a typo, it's not. You can have an S with an apostrophe or an S with an apostrophe and an S. Both are legitimately correct by Chicago and MLA format. And I prefer Jesus's they're just saying Jesus, in case that bothers you. Maybe only one of us is like that. Jesus' miraculous conception and Jesus' redemptive mission. First, Jesus' miraculous conception. Although in Joseph's mind, and as written and stipulated in the law, there were only two options regarding Mary's pregnancy. She was unwillingly forced or willingly unfaithful. There, in reality, there was a third option that neither he nor anyone else ever would have considered a possibility before then or since. The truth is that Jesus had no earthly father. Jesus' miraculous conception, and we speak of this doctrine as is, as is here. Uh, where did he come from? If not earthly fathers, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So the text says, it says at first in verse 18, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then the angel announces that that's the case as well. We could look in Luke uh, to understand aspects of that as well. Uh, I, I, I imagine it goes without saying, this is not any type of, of crass mythological um, physical encounter between a form of God and a human being. I, that might happen in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, or other things. Not what's taking place here. Um, but it was a miraculous birth. And what's interesting about this is sometimes God reveals his plan in scripture through verbal prophecy with a promise and a fulfillment. This is what will happen and this, and then this happened, right? I think we're familiar with that type of a format. But other times God hints at something that he's going to do in the future through a pattern of his activity. These patterns are shadows or types that point forward to something far more significant, even ultimate. If, you, if you're looking for these type of things, you can see it in a lot of, of really good literature. Uh, sometimes it's not very subtle. The authors, I think, probably still establishing their craft. Not judging, I wouldn't be able to do it very well. But it's like, you can kind of tell like, oh, this will happen in a movie. It's like, oh, nothing will ever happen to separate our relationships. Like, oh, that's the plot. Something's gonna happen to separate there, right? It's sort of a foreshadowing of those type of things. It's like, well, God is, is an author uh, who has written the plan of history to accomplish his purposes and bring himself glory and the redemption of his people. And so there's all sorts of these type of foreshadowings that happen. 
Uh, we could see Noah's Ark as a type or a foreshadowing of God providing for humanity deliverance from his judgment. Uh, we could see, and scripture speaks of this, we could see Israel's redemption from slavery to sin, for, uh, as a pattern or a type of the deliverance we have from slavery to sin, deliverance that comes through Christ. Another perhaps less obvious pattern, but it's nonetheless there, is a pattern of unlikely births made possible by God throughout the history of God's people. Sarah was barren until she was 90 years old. Love her to death, miss her every week, and Ashmas is 90 years old. Wouldn't that be odd <laughs> to find out Anne was expecting? It's like, that's, that's not normally how things work. That wasn't how things normally worked back then either. But at 90, according to God's promise and by his power, she conceived and gave birth to Isaac. Her granddaughter, Rachel, was likewise barren, but God enabled her to conceive and give birth to both, jo both Joseph and Benjamin. Hannah was barren until God answered her prayer, opened her womb, and gave her baby Samuel. And then we see in Luke chapter 1, an old woman named Elizabeth married to one of the priests named Zechariah. She also became pregnant who had formerly been barren, with a baby boy who would be named John, for nothing is impossible with God. And all these births were miraculous, and they were all impossible without God's intervention, but none of them come close to what took place in Mary. Each of those babies had an earthly father, Abraham, Jacob, Elkanah, Zechariah, but the conception of Jesus was not by any human earthly father. His conception was an act of creation in the womb of Mary. Like the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters in Genesis 1 as the world and everything in it was spoken into existence, so the Holy Spirit hovered over or, or overshadowed Mary as the eternal person of the Son of God entered creation, taking on himself a true human nature. Then, like every other conceived baby, his cells began to multiply and he grew and organs formed, like a heart and a brain and lungs and a stomach. He grew eyes and ears and a mouth and a nose and so on. And that initial conception, that one moment, was unlike anything that had ever happened, unlike anything that ever could happen again. And the Holy Spirit, in an act of creation, brought this about. Jesus was conceived, not by an earthly father, but by the Holy Spirit. And this took place in Mary while she was still a virgin, kind of just doubling down on these type of things. Many skeptics, skeptics have scoffed at this impossibility because it's not how human conception takes place. And it isn't how human conception takes place. We just like, we grant that point. Right? Uh, there must be both a human father and a human mother in order for a human baby to come into existence normally. But the whole point is that this is not a normal birth. This is not a normal conception. It's not as if Matthew thought that things could just sort of happen. This is like, I don't know, stork, Holy Spirit, who knows? Right? There wasn't some sort of naivety like that. It's kind of the modern arrogance that's so common. It's like, oh, they were all so stupid. And now we know that it needs an earthly father 
and mother. They, they knew as clearly as we know. Even if some of the different details are more specifically known, they all knew it was not a normal birth. It was a supernatural event made possible by supernatural intervention. In other words, God was acting in the universe he created outside of the normal natural laws that he had established. It was a miracle in every sense of the word. Not a miracle as in not very likely or not, not a miracle as in isn't that cool how that worked out. A miracle as in without God stepping in, it doesn't happen. The Bible and Christianity based on the Bible, full of supernatural events, full of it. It is full of God acting to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes he acts in ordinary means. He's always acting in ordinary means. Other times he acts completely outside of ordinary means. I mean, think about this. Creation is not natural. There was nothing and other than God. There's nothing and then there was something. Right? That doesn't just happen. It's happened once and it's never happened again. Creation's not natural, it's supernatural. The parting of the Red Sea, supernatural deliverance. Bread appearing on the ground, water flowing out of rocks, fire falling from heaven, axe heads floating, the sun standing still, all supernatural events that literally took place in the history of God's people. Christianity is a supernatural religion or faith. And if you try to suck or remove the supernatural from it, you are left with something less than Christianity, biblical Christianity. It is necessary that we accept by faith the truthfulness of these supernatural events because God has told us about them in his word. I think it's this simple, okay? God either exists and is able to powerfully intervene in his creation or God does not exist. If there is a God who made all things by his powerful word, how could he not step in and do something contrary to that, right? Water's supposed to do this. Who made it do that? God made it do that. So if God doesn't want it to do that anymore, he can stop it, right? Or there's no powerful God at all. But this kind of like, yeah, he exists, but he, he's not allowed to intervene. Says who? Like, who could tell God, like, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that? Really? <laughs> no one has the authority over God to do that. And so, like, that middle ground, and, and really, it's just like, is creation or, or the, the flood or the floating axe head or fire coming down from heaven and consuming you know, wood and stone and, and food and water, um, any number of those different things that you would go through, any of them really any more or less unlikely or impossible for God is all contrary to the way that things normally go. Grant that to be true, but God is able to act contrary to the way things naturally are. That's what a miracle is. I say all that to so be like, oh yeah, yep, believe God created the world. Uh, believe this, believe that, right? But the virgin birth, no, that couldn't have happened. Like, how is that the line? How is that, that's too far? When God has done so many other impossible things as well. 
Either he, he is and he can, or he isn't, so he can't. And biblical Christianity says he is, as in he exists, and he is powerful, and he can, and he has. That's where we come down to with this. These twin doctrines, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. These two, and they are twins, they are true and necessary parts of the gospel. They are not miscellaneous details about Jesus, as if it doesn't matter. It does matter. And here's why it matters. The Bible teaches every human being is born guilty and sinful. That's the normal, natural, necessary pattern. We are guilty and will be punished for Adam's first sin in the garden. He was our representative. He was our leader. He was our head. And this means that every human being is born condemned already by the righteous judgment of God. Because when Adam sinned, we sin. In Adam, all die, Paul says. We are also, so we're born guilty and we're also born sinful. We inherit a sinful nature from our parents. And from the womb, we are bent toward sin. We are slaves to sin. So every human being naturally born guilty and sinful. But because Jesus' birth was not natural or according to the normal process of things, those two things were not true of him. He was not guilty of Adam's sin. And he did not have a sinful nature. Some believers would say this was because he did not have an earthly father, but the Bible does not attach guilt and sin merely to fathers. Mothers are also sinful, right? Sinful traits that our girls have, some of them could have come from me, and I mean, they didn't, obviously, but some of them could have come from Leanne, like theoretically, she doesn't have any, you know, but trying, trying to score some points. In sin, my mother conceived me, David said. And he ties aspects of that. You see the sinfulness of both men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. So it's not just like she gave hair color and I gave sin. <laughs> and they don't have red hair, but that's the genetic thing that I never, I don't remember that lesson from biology. Human mothers, Mary included, just as, hear that? Mary included. She recognized she needed a savior. Nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture does it claim sinlessness for Mary. Right? That, that's kind of a different sermon. She recognizes she needed a savior in her beautiful, inspired Magnificat in Luke. Right? She recognizes that I need a savior. Okay? So sinlessness for Mary never claimed in scripture. Human mothers, Mary included, are just as guilty and sinful as human fathers pass on those traits to their children. But Jesus' supernatural conception by the power of the Holy Spirit allowed him to be somehow protected from the stain of sin normally and naturally passed from human parents to their children. So it's not as simple as like, oh, he didn't have a dad, so he didn't have sin. Okay, that's, some people give that explanation. I'm not saying that's heresy. I just I don't think that that's biblical. It's the supernatural protection of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. The guilt of Adam was not transferred to him and a sinful nature did not come from Mary to him, which was just as likely as it could have come from Joseph. But it didn't. This is how he's talked about as so unique that he's a second Adam. Because there's a similarity between the creation of Adam in the garden, the creation of Jesus in the womb of Mary. The two heads that's a Roman sermon, not a Matthew sermon. 
Jesus' conception in the womb also uh, of a virgin. This was a fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy, which really does fit under a miraculous conception. Uh, any of your births spoken about 400 years, 600 years prior? Anybody? Be super cool. I'd love to hear that story. The founding fathers, or earlier than the founding fathers, right? The pilgrims came over and be like, one day there will be a boy named PJ. <laughs> He'll be really obnoxious, but eventually God will use him to preach the gospel in Hurricane, West Virginia. So like, what are you talking about? If there's a record, let me know. I just never, I'm not aware of it. But Jesus, his miraculous conception, his birth was spoken of in Old Testament prophecy. The angel draws attention to this passage is Isaiah chapter seven. This supernatural event was a fulfillment of a prophecy made by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before any of this took place in Matthew. It could be the angel quotation, like the ESV has the quote end at the, uh, the angel's announcement, the end of verse 21, and then Matthew stepping in. Ah, that's fine. It could actually be that the angel is continuing as well, like the angel's drawing specifically. It's like, and this has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy. So the angel could be giving the word as well here, but it's, it's obvious that God wants us to look at this passage in Isaiah chapter seven. Uh, that's worth its own sermon or series, but that, that prophecy, this promise, we have quoted in verse 23, originally given to King Ahaz, who was from Judah, and it was a sign of deliverance from two kings that planned to wage war on or against Jerusalem. The Lord, through Isaiah, offers to Ahaz any miraculous sign he wants as proof of the deliverance that would come. Ask anything, the highest of heights, the lowest of depths. Uh, just I mean, spend some time this afternoon thinking that were offered to you. What would you ask? And pick something cool. Ahaz is like, oh, no, 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 no. Right, this sort of this false piety. He had already made up his mind what he was gonna do and it didn't involve God. He falsely, false piety, oh, I'm not gonna test the Lord. And Isaiah responds, you know, God sees right through that. He says, you're not gonna ask for a sign? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Some would see in the context of that passage a, a near or immediate fulfillment of this promise in the birth of a normal baby. Uh, and maybe that's true and maybe that's not. It could be that there's both near and there's far. And I, and I was gonna spend a lot of time on that. But that would be a sermon on Isaiah 7 and that's not what I'm preaching today. So maybe. <laughs> Uh, but what's undeniable is that even if there is a, a semi-fulfillment taking place near, we can't follow scripture and not see that this prophecy in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. Both from the larger context of Isaiah and in Matthew chapter 1. You could read Isaiah 7 through Isaiah 9 and see that there's a, a stream of thought, a, a whole prophetic movement that goes from this virgin will conceive and bear a son. In Isaiah 8, there's another normal son that's born to Isaiah. But there's gotta be a bigger arch that's happening because the, there's a child talked about in seven, and then you get back to a child talked about in nine, and the child talked about in nine is the one whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the little baby born in Isaiah 8 to Isaiah, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, that's just an option. 
Have you guys, I don't, well, it's not boy, but, you know, maybe Riker, instead of Riker, the Powell should have Mahir Shalal Hashbaz, it's a nice biblical name. But that child born to Isaiah and to his wife would never have been called Mighty God or Everlasting Father. That is not a merely human child. So this is a prophecy that finds its ultimate, maybe its only, but certainly its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus as scripture tells us. Jesus had a miraculous conception. This is one part of the angelic announcement. There's a second part to that announcement and said Jesus's redemptive mission. Jesus's redemptive mission. The angel, the angel did not just speak to Joseph about where Jesus came from. He also spoke about why he was there or what he would accomplish now that he had arrived through these supernatural means. Two points about that. First, that Jesus would be the savior from his people's sins. Let's go back to the announcement. We got that conception, verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's actually a play on words here. This is really neat. Uh, Jesus was not a unique name in his day. Uh, it's not necessarily a unique name across the world now either. I see like a Jesus or something like that in other cultures. I had one experience in a small Caribbean island called Cariacou in the West Indies where we went. We did a VBS in high school and uh, they use biblical names as well. And so they fill out their name on a form and we'd put it on their little VBS packet with their verses and their little Ziploc bags so they could get um, like currency that we made up to buy the trinkets that we had brought, little stuffed animals and beanie babies and all that kind of stuff. Got another story about that, but I'll save that. Uh, and so there were two brothers I'll never forget in this camp, and I'll never forget for two reasons. One, because they were not honest. I mean, they were, they would like trick other workers. Oh, this is my first day. Oh, welcome. Here's five tickets or dollars. Okay, now find another worker. Hey, it's my first day here. Well, that's great. Here's five tickets. So they're start. I mean, they're they're running this scam in vacation Bible school. Uh, and one of the boys, his name was Moses, and the other boy was named Jesus. So my youth pastor was like, uh, uh, Jesus? No, it's Jesus. And we had to be like later, like Jesus, stop taking those things. It's like, oh, sorry, I. Mm. That Jesus was not without sin. Okay, this Jesus was. But, you know, back in the day, Jesus was a common name. It's also a historical name. The name Jesus is actually a Greek form of the Hebrew name Yehoshua or Yeshua. And we normally change the Y to a J and we pronounce it. Anybody know? Joshua. Joshua equals Jesus. Do you know what Yehoshua, Yeshua, or Joshua means? It means the Lord is salvation, or the Lord saves. So if we were to expand Matthew 121, what is the angel saying to these Hebrew or Aramaic speaking people? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. 
His very name speaks of his office, his role, the reason that he came, this mission that he was on. Jesus would be the savior from his people's sins. And this is remarkable. It's not just that Jesus brings God's promised salvation, but Jesus is God's promised salvation, right? Like the judges would come and they brought deliverance for the people or Moses brought God's deliverance for the people. Jesus didn't just bring deliverance from God's people. Jesus was he is the deliverance from God's people. Do you see, is that, is that semantics? Is that a nuance? I think it's significant. He didn't just send someone to do something in someone else's power, right? It, Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise. He is the savior. He is the one who accomplished it. So his name speaks more truthfully of his office than anything else ever could. Jesus is Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord who would Save. Every time that his name was spoken, it's just a reminder of who he was, the Lord, and what he was doing, bringing salvation. Jesus is God's promised salvation. Jesus is a savior from sins. Everybody wants deliverance from something. You might want deliverance from debt. You might want deliverance from a frustrating neighbor. You might want deliverance from a long sermon. You might want deliverance from a sickness. Everybody wants deliverance from something, but what we often miss is that what God is working in us is not necessarily what we want for ourselves, and only one of us can be right, and it's God. What you need is not necessarily what you want. What you need, and what we've all needed since the garden, is salvation from sin. They wanted salvation from Rome. But Jesus didn't come to bring salvation from Rome. He came to bring salvation from sin. The wrath of God, not the wrath of the Romans. Spiritual wholeness, not prosperity and, and economically. Jesus is a savior from sins, providing rescue from our greatest problem. And Jesus is a savior for his people. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. At first read, this may sound like he's only a Jewish savior. After all, his people must be his people Israel, right? But as you continue to read Matthew, you'll find out that's absolutely not the case. Jesus was not just a Jewish savior or a savior for Jewish people. He's a savior of both Jews and Gentiles because he will have disciples from all nations. So this, his people is not just referring to Jewish people. And it's not just for everyone. So this is referring, even in this promise from the angel, referring to the elect people of God, those whom God sovereignly and graciously chose in eternity past before the foundation of the world to be saved. They are the objects of his eternal love. They are the ones Jesus was sent to save. They are the ones for whom and in whose place he would die. And eternity future will show Jesus perfectly accomplished his redemptive mission. He did indeed die to save his people from their sins. So we are saved from our sins. When Jesus, when, excuse me, when God called on and commanded Joseph to take Mary as his wife and to give Jesus his name, and he says they did that, right? He woke and he called, he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. 
I don't want to miss the fact that this was a this was a matter of Joseph legally adopting Jesus. He did not keep a distance between himself and this son who was not his biologically. Why give Joseph's genealogy proving Jesus's Davidic kingship if not through Joseph was Jesus a Davidic king? And I know there are questions about Luke's genealogy. Is that Mary? Is that Joseph? How do these things line up? That's fine. Different discussion. Matthew is saying Jesus is the son of Abraham and he's the son of David, God's rightful king, because his dad was Joseph and he wasn't a dad biologically. And the only other option is dad by adoption. Jesus was Joseph's legal heir. And that's what happens and he called his name Jesus, just as God brings in through adoption to full sonship. Joseph did not keep Jesus at a distance. He was his son in every way except biologically. So he was a Davidic king. Jesus would be the savior from his people's sins, the redemptive mission, and then the other aspect, Jesus was Emmanuel. Emmanuel is another Hebrew word spoken of in that passage in Isaiah. Instead of translated, it's just transliterated. But in case you don't speak Hebrew fluently, I don't speak Hebrew fluently. Matthew even translates it for us. Emmanuel means, end of verse 23, what is it? God with us. God with us. This was literally and perfectly true of Jesus. And we could talk about people who say literally and they mean not literally. And that's, don't do that. But when I say literally, I mean literally, literally, perfectly, this is who Jesus was. Not just God sending somebody to represent him. Jesus was not a representative of God. Jesus is God, God with us. God didn't send someone else to help them, his people, or save them. He came himself. Jesus is the God-man, eternal God, the second person of the Trinity who became what he was not, truly human, without ceasing in any way to remain what he was, truly God, not, not a hybrid. Talk about this a couple years ago, right? Not a, not a man who became God, not God who appeared to be a man, not, not divine seed with human seed to form some sort of mythological um, new species, not what this was. No, true human, and some creeds get to the, of the very substance cells that came and developed from Mary. So you did a DNA test on Jesus. It's going to show his connection to Mary, right? There's not like glowing strands of DNA because he was something different. He is human, flesh, blood, sleeping, sneezing, true human, also true God, if he's anything different than those two things, salvation is not possible. The whole gospel is just wrapped up in that one word. Nobody called him Emmanuel, so that's not what it means. 
It's like, wait, did they call him Jesus? Did they call him Emmanuel? They called him Jesus. It's really obvious. That's what he was supposed to be called. So Emmanuel is a title of that. This is his mission, redemptively, that he was God with us. The whole gospel, the, the power of the gospel, it's God who is with us. And the perfection of the gospel, the sinlessness of God is the sinlessness of Jesus. As righteous as God is, Jesus is righteous. So the perfection of the gospel is found in that. A human being who never sinned, perfectly righteous, the person of Jesus. And the personal nature of the gospel also wrapped up in that. God, God with us. Like he could have been born south of 60 in some holler. Like that real. He could have walked in here and it wouldn't have been somebody that would have drawn attention to himself. Yet he was very God of very God. We hear it every year. We sing about it. Uh, artists sing about it that have no idea what it means. I think Christmas carols are the easiest songs for me to sing without thinking about them. Appreciate uh, Robbie drawing our attention to specific meanings of songs. It's like, hey guys, don't just sing it. Pay attention to it. Emmanuel. And we need that attention to be drawn to those things. The whole gospel, God with us to die for us. Give us life. According to Matthew, the rest of Jesus' birth story can be summed up in a verse or two. After the angelic announcement, Joseph woke up and he did as the angel of the commanded, commanded him. He took his wife, but did not know her. There was no um, consummation of the marriage until after Jesus had been born. Then there was consummation of the marriage because Jesus had brothers and sisters. We see that in scripture. And he called his name Jesus. All that was promised through prophets, through angels, took place exactly as God said it would. You see that already up into Matthew chapter one. And let me say this. Everything else that God had promised and prophesied regarding Jesus has also taken place. He lived a life of perfect obedience before God as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He offered himself as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. And God raised him from the dead in victory over sin and death. And remembering these things, we, we want to come together in, in faith and in humility and in gratitude to the Lord's table. God with us is, is pictured here as well. God with us, God for us. The bread, because he had a body and that body was broken. And the blood, because he was a sacrifice and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He will save his people from their sins for he is God with us. And so in a minute, we'll, we'll come and we'll receive the elements, be a time of, of remembrance and a time of, of worship. What, what should we be thinking about as we come to the Lord's table? What, 
what should be our, our mindset? What should be an assurance that we draw from these things? And as so often, I know I've quoted this before, but I'm going to do it again. Um, Heidelberg Catechism just helps me, um, teaches me, points me to the realities of Scripture. And it, it shepherds us as we come to the Lord's table. Hear these, hear these words. Question 75, Heidelberg Catechism. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and drink this cup in remembrance of him. And with this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me, and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me, and his blood poured out for me on the cross. As surely as this bread has been broken, and this cup is there, so surely Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. That's the first promise of the gospel. What this is pointing us back to happened happened in time and space and happened before God and was accepted. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. The cross is not the only thing that Jesus does for us. It's not just forgiveness of sins, but it's life with him and with the Father now and forever. So come and, and taste the gospel. God is with us. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Uh, may these familiar stories and, and our thoughts on who Jesus is and where he came from and what he accomplished, it strengthen our faith and even strengthen our faith as we come to this table. We believe uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of Mary while she was still a virgin. And then he came to be the Savior from our sins, and he was God with us. He's opened our eyes and our hearts to accept this as, as true and life-changing, whether for the first time, for those who have not yet believed, or for the thousandth time, that you would be glorified. Amen.